Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. ECMO circuit changeouts. When and how? I know we're going to argue about this, but go ahead. Well, not really. because I'm going to be very quiet I set up, The way I set it up, it's not really, we're not going to argue. Okay, thanks everyone for continuing to stay with us I today. already disagree. It's Saturday and we know you have other things to do, but this is going to be um, a great... Our final talk. Yeah, it's the end of the day. And, and then it's going to be great. Well, let's hope so. It's hard to follow men, but okay. All right, so we're going to be talking today, I'm going to be talking about ECMO circuit changeout. Okay, first, um, before we talk about the changeout, we just need to talk about, first thing we need to be doing is managing our circuit. How are we going to maximize the life of our disposables? I thought this was kind of cute. The platelets are so cute, and they like to have parties. And uh, you can read for yourself there that, you know, one platelet gets an idea, and then next thing you know, you end up in that last square, and then they're all stuck. And that's a problem for us. Okay, so managing our circuit, the first thing we really need to be thinking about, the most important thing, and I think this is always at um, the forefront of our um, worries, is preventing clot. So we can prevent clot, uh, well, we try to prevent clot by having an initial heparin dose into our circuit prime. Some people do, you know, I've heard of uh, 3,000 up to 10,000 units. I know 10,000 sounds a little high, but a lot of times they're putting that in when they're still circulating, and so you're going to lose a lot of that in your bagged volume that you, you know, throw away. Um, giving the patient an initial heparin bolus prior to cannulation, we heard John talk about that a little bit yesterday. Three to 5,000 units is usually plenty. And that's even, that, that, both of those things are still really important, even if you're going to go with a zero uh, heparin anticoagulation strategy, just starting out, um, making sure that we get a little bit, uh, get a good flush through our circuit and also allowing the, um, the blood to not clot in the cannula while we're trying to get that all situated before we get on bypass and have flow. I wonder, theoretically, if I could just ask you, I wonder if that first pass of that anticoagulation in the beginning doesn't help to prevent the initial flush of blood we have from starting the clotting cascade and let that first layer, that protein layer, develop. I think it does to uh, sort of a pseudo-endothelial well, that, That's kind of how I've always thought about it, because even before we had, you know, coated everything... Um, just getting that heparin through the first time, it's allowing it a quick pass instead of everything getting stuck right away is kind yes. of what I was thinking. Yeah, I think so. I don't really have any evidence to back that up, but that's how I've always Me thought either. about it. Um, okay, and then you need to think about your patient anticoagulation, whether you're going to go with heparin. And I know a lot of people have different ranges. I used to manage at a 60 to 80 range PTT, um, and then we slowly kept dialing it back, and I think... A lot of people are now in the range of 40 to 60, um, you know, being a little bit more conservative because we've found that, especially uh, at higher flows, we really just don't need uh, really high PTTs like we thought we did. Or, of course, some people out there may still be using ACTs, and I think that, too, even running the ACTs a little bit lower, you know, less than that 180 to 220 that uh, I think a lot of us were trained on, you know, running it somewhere probably in the, like, 160 range. 
Um, you know, if you're VV, are you going to be doing a Plavix, Aspirin, Lovenox? There's a lot of different options out there, and there's actually quite a few articles that have been published if you're interested in this. And uh, we, for the first time, have started that on a few of our uh, VV ECMOs at one institution and have gotten a little bit more familiar with that. Um, and so uh, I think it's a, something everyone should definitely look into. Okay, so still preventing clots here. Now we're going to talk about just a, a different strategy versus trying to uh, look at it from anticoagulation and uh, platelet therapy strategy, but looking at it from just a flow strategy. Because we all know that um, forward flow is going to help prevent stasis, and stasis is where we get the clots. So make sure you're maintaining your uh, flow to your patient at um, a reasonable level. There's, you know, varying ideas on what is low flow, but, you know, I think anything 2.5 liters um, or less, uh, you probably need to proceed with caution. Maybe if you're not on anticoagulation, maybe you want to get on some anticoagulation, or if you're running really low anticoagulation, maybe you want to bump it up just a little bit. Of course, you need to maintain your accessory lines, and that includes, um, you know, if you, you're flushing them, because even if you're not using them, they are going to get some stasis at some point. So you need to make sure that you're drawing back, making sure you don't have any clots, and then flushing them, keeping them clean. That means after blood draws, you've got to flush them. You've got to keep your stopcocks clean. You know, if you need to take a little bit of alcohol and do that sort of cleaning, you don't want to get those flakes that uh, dried blood uh, into the stopcock, and the next time you draw, now you've got the flake in there, and it's just going to uh, it can stick to the sides of the connectors and things. Uh, it can grab onto fibrin, and then you're going to, you know, cause yourself a problem. It's real easy to, you know, just take those extra steps and maintain your accessory lines. You want to keep your purge lines open. You know, if you have an oxygenator that has that um, top of the oxygenator purge, even if you don't want to have it full flow, you can go ahead and have it just slight flow and ha keep that open and clean because you may need it, one. And two, it's a place where clot can develop. And even if you're not flowing through it and you think, well, the clot is trapped in there, clot is trapped all the way through it. So if you've had it open even once, you've got clot at the bottom to wherever it's connected and that clot can break off and become a problem. You want to, um, if you have a bridge in your circuit, I know a lot of pediatrics uh, do this, some, even some adult programs still have bridges, you want to make sure you're flashing that hourly, you know. Uh, you're keeping an eye on any place where you can have stasis. Okay, next we're going to be talking about uh, if we're preventing clot, it's great. Now let's monitor our performance. Um, and that really comes down to doing uh, various circuit checks. Number one thing you need to be doing is you need to be on clot watch. You need to be doing those flashlight inspections, looking at any place that, you know, clot can catch and form. Because it's going to, you know there's probably some clot in your oxygenator way before you're going to see clot anywhere else. So by you doing these inspections, even though, you know, you're like, hey, the circuit's fine, it's performing fine, it's giving you a clue as to what's going on inside your oxygenator. And that's important. Um, you want to make sure you're maintaining uh, or monitoring your RPMs. Especially with some of these COVID patients, you might be running a little bit different uh, coagulation strategy than anticoagulation strategy than you're used to. You can get clots. And monitoring those RPMs, of course, you're, you know, you're going to know the amount of force it takes to be able to get through the oxygenator. 
but you also need to be watching them because you could have clots be forming inside your pump head. This just happened to us, and the RPMs were the first clue that something was going on. And the RPMs were kind of jumping around, but not in a way that you normally see for chatter. They were doing these big swings. So you were at 2,700 RPMs, and for no reason... It was decoupling. Yeah. For no reason at all, you had a huge swing. And so that's what I was going to uh, lead into is when you have clot in your pump head, it's going to cause those centrifugal pumps to decouple. Monitor your oxygen oxygenator for, for uh, clot formation too. You know, you need to be looking at that um, at least every shift, um, if, you're, uh, if not uh, more often than that. And if you do have some kind of concern, you have different uh, methods to be able to try to figure that out. You know, if you're lucky enough to have some kind of flow meter like the uh, ELSA monitor, you can measure oxygenator volume to start, and then you can, uh, you know, as you get into your ECMO support run and your oxygenator is getting older, or, you know, really anything, your RPMs are going up and you're trying to figure out why, you can go ahead and run another oxygenator volume test. Now, if, you're, if you don't have one of those, then, of course, you can go back to trying to, um, you know, we don't personally run pre and post pressures anymore, um, but you could always hook one up. You know, you can put in a, uh, uh, add to a pigtail, a pressure manometer, and you can go ahead and do a manual calculation to figure out your delta P if you have a concern and a reason to do so. Is the delta P of, uh, greater than 100, right? Is yes. That when you're concerned? Yeah, yeah that, that's what's considered ex acceptable. Acceptable. Yeah. Anything greater than 100, and yeah. you see a trend. In. Mm -hmm. If you see a trend, and remember, yeah, it's a trending thing. It's, it's, it, I think the performance of most of the oxygenators out there now, um, they really do last a long time. So you have a lot of clues that yeah. you're going to start yeah. having a problem. Yeah, you, yeah you, don't, you just don't go by that. You look at everything to right. see if it, um, if it, if it, you know, if the patient actually does need to change out. Right. Just like, you know, with the, Dr. Kravinsky was showing us uh, that, uh, those oxygenator volumes that he measured, mm -hmm. sure, he had a huge decrease. Mm -hmm. He must have got a really big clot in there, right? Mm -hmm. But then it kind of maintained for a little while. Sure. It's not usually going to be, I have to do this didn't right warn, now. Didn't warrant an emergent change out. Right. So it's, and it's always better, of course, to have a planned change out. Right. There's lots of things that you can do and make, uh, to prep for it and make it a lot safer. Mm -hmm. But if you're not doing these checks, then there's no way for you to, to monitor know. and trend. It's always easier to do something electively than emergently. Right. For sure. But if you're not monitoring it, you don't know how long you've... Ooh. Sorry. That's okay. You don't know how long you've been collecting clots or having RPM problems. If you're not paying attention to that or you're not... Um, you know, making an, an effort to actually look at that, then you, how are you going to know? Okay, next we're going to talk about just, you know, gas exchange. Um, I think everyone is still doing sign the oxygenator, you know, at least. I know that used to say it every hour or two, but I just try to do it once a shift. Um, you want to monitor your uh, venous circuit gas, your arterial circuit gas. People have different intervals at which they do those, and that's totally fine. But remember, you have a lot of tools available to you to be able to check the performance of your oxygenator. Mm -hmm. Monitor how much weeping and foaming you have. You know, you just look at the health of your oxygenator. Know your vent settings. Because uh, maybe, you know, you're, you're monitoring your patient ABGs and they have kind of a swing and you're like, why? 
Well, if you didn't know your initial vent settings, when you go look at the vent, how are you going to know? Because they don't always announce to us, I made a change. I've made it a part of my uh, practice and my, anytime I'm on shift, that I'm going to write down my initial vent settings. And then if I see a change, uh, I can go to the vent and say, oh, look, they changed this. It was a positive effect or it was a negative effect, right? Mm -hmm. But really the most important thing uh, in monitoring your performance is monitor your patient's ABGs. Mm -hmm. That's telling you everything you need to know. And just one quick caution, make sure you know what kind of oxygenator you're using, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, if you're polypropylene or PMP, you need to know because, of course, polypropylene can work great. It, it will last a long time on many, many patients, you know, even uh, seven days. We have them regularly last that long. But you need to know so that if you have lipids or any lipid-based medication like propofol, it can really... Um, contribute to the degradation of your oxygenator. So or make sure the patient is hyperlipidemic. Yeah, hyperlipidemic, that too. Yeah. That can happen as well. So just mm -hmm. keep all of that in mind. Mm -hmm. All right, so now we've determined, okay, our CO2 is, is, we're maxed out on sweep. We can't go up anymore. The vent settings are where they are and we can't really, you know, tweak those changes. Um, or maybe it's our oxygen. Our oxygen is not, uh, you know, the patient's not getting enough oxygen. We've done a circuit gas, and we've decided that the oxygenator's not performing mm. well. Oh, you know, it's really weeping. It's just foaming out of its gas exhaust. That's a and bad sign. That's a, you know, it's always a bad sign uh, when it's really just really foamy. Mm. Um, now we've decided we're going to need to do a change. Okay, so let's talk about how to do that change. First off, you need to do a pre-plan. Uh, you need to pre-plan a lot. And uh, the first thing that you need to do, in my opinion, for the pre-planning is communication. You need to talk with your other team members, your perfusionist, your bedside nurse, your RT, your attending physician, whether that be the surgeon or the intensivist or the hospitalist or whoever is your main contact for managing this. Everyone needs to know, hey, oxygenator's starting to not perform well, you know, not an emergency, but we need to start thinking about this. Because, of course, if you're, you know, in a place where you can wean and get off, wean and get off. Mm -hmm. Or if you're at a place where maybe support's not going so well and this might not be the thing that they're going to be able to survive, that's also communication that everyone needs to know. <coughs> or if it's just a regular change out, that way people know so we can start planning. It's always better to plan this at, you know, a shift change with one of your perfusionists or during a non-busy time if you're going to be expecting the nurse and the RT and all of those people to help you. Okay. Second part of pre-plan is to gather your supplies. So personally, I always just prime a new circuit. Um, I know some people might prefer, they don't want to lose that blood volume, they don't want to add that much more crystalloid. You know, that, that's a personal preference. Um, I don't think it makes that much Most difference. Most of it is in the oxygenator. I know, but I've, that's, I've heard that argument, so I'm just putting it out there. It doesn't matter what you want to do. Prime your circuit, prime your oxygenator. No, I think okay. it does matter what you do. I personally like a new circuit. Okay, so then this is just the supplies that... And I agree. You agree? Okay. Well, I so, agree with you. I'm so glad. These are the things that we always try to have, and a lot of times we'll have them in uh, just a little change-out bag. We've been doing so many ECMOs lately, and then you just have everything in there, and when you're ready to change out, all you got to do is prime your circuit, right? It's 
easy. Um, six tubing clamps. You really need four, but I always like to have two extra because I'm going to have two on my new circuit anyway. Um, your chloroprep or whatever you're going to use to disinfect the area that you're going to be cutting. Uh, your, of course. Googles? You need gowns, Googles? <laughs> to Googles. You should say goggles. All right. Gowns, gowns Googles, and masks. Yep, all your PPE. Make sure you're being safe. I tell you what, sometimes when we clamp those lines, everybody has googly eyes <laughs> because true. it's going, it's, it's not going well. It's true. Uh, you want, depending on who's doing the changeout. Depending on who's doing the changeout. If I can, yeah, exactly. Um, make sure you have sterile gloves. Um, one set. You need to have one person who's going to have sterile hands, if you will. Uh, a few sterile towels, if you have those available, those are great. They are really easy to set up your sterile field if you do not have that. Then, uh, you know, a small sterile drape if you can get that. If not, then, you know, just do the best you can do. But it really is nice if you can get those sterile towels. Uh, sterile scissors are always my preference. They're much safer. They're quicker. Um, but a sterile blade will work as well. And then, uh, depending on your technique, you might need two 3-8s, 3-8s connectors. And I'll get into technique uh, for that later, but just know that that could be something that you need. You should have it available anyway, because even if you decide to go with the non-connector changeout, something can go wrong, and you might have to abort that, and you need to have the connectors to I had be to able do to do it the other day. Yeah, it we can happen. I so get just it off the cannula. So just have it available. That's why I just go ahead and get connected. I know we're gonna. We're, okay, we, I'll, I'll I'll learn one day. Have, uh, you want to make sure you have saline fill syringes. Some people just grab the pre-made uh, flushes. I personally don't care for those. I think you have to go through too many, especially if you have a problem with a bubble. You know, you're you're now you're getting to your other syringe. I just like to get a big syringe and go ahead and fill it with saline. You know, a 30cc syringe um, or a couple 20ccs, I think, is faster. But really, uh, that's a preference. And then uh, marking supplies. I don't. It doesn't matter what you use. You want to use tape. We have these great kind of blue gloves in our hospital, so I love those because mm -hmm. blue is Venus that's in my idea. mind, or blue is access. Mm -hmm. um, and and not in dialysis. Well, not in dialysis. <laughs> that's right. But you can be able to mark one of your lines, and I think that is absolutely key. And then if you're a tie bander, then go ahead and have your tie bands. Then you need to have your pre-planned meeting. Okay, so you want to make sure, this I hope goes without me having to point it out, but you need to clear family and visitors. This is not a time, a lot of these patients are so critical, this is not the time you want family and visitors, even just waiting out in the hall. Mm -hmm. If something goes wrong, that's the last distraction that you need. Mm -hmm. um, if you have an ABG that's going to be due soon, mm -hmm. um, go ahead and send it because you're going to probably have a drop in saturation on these really critical patients and then when you send one shortly after, it's not, uh, you know, depending on how long you wait, it's not going to be reflective of what's really going on with the patient. Um, you want to uh, ready your area with all your supplies. Do your talk through rolls. So, you know, Joe and I are going to be doing it, uh, or you and your bedside nurse. That was wrong. We are going to be changing out the oxygenator. <laughs> Stop giggling. No one even went there till you giggled. Um, talk about who's going to be the sterile person, who's going to be cutting. You've got to stop. I'm not going to be able to continue. Who is going to be um, uh, monitoring the, the patient's pressure? Because, you know, if you are doing the cutting and the filling, someone else needs to have eyes on the pressure mm -hmm. and the saturations and make sure what's going on there. Mm -hmm. 
verbalize the step-by-step -step procedure. So men and I have changed out quite a few oxygenators together, and we always, once we assume whoever's going to be the mm -hmm. sterile person, who's going to be the person cutting, uh, they, they talk through the steps. First, I'm going to cut the venous line, and then I'm going to do this, and it's said out loud. So Clamp I'm, it first. Yes. Clamp it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> What I really meant was decide if you're going to do venous or arterial first. That's really important. Everyone's on the same page. It'll help you prevent um, making a mistake. Okay. And then make sure you have um, a plan for uh, your pressure support and your vent support. Okay. So let's talk about strategies a little bit. Um, this is just a basic uh, diagram of an ECMO circuit, but my strategy... I like to go ahead and, depending on the patient, because some of these COVID patients, we've really had to take to CT a lot. And so actually having a little bit longer lines give you room to have the ECMO machine outside of the CT uh, and you're not struggling trying to get them in there with your lines being too short. But if you don't have to uh, worry about that, then I go ahead and I get assuming that the cannula is in the IJ, for example, is here, I'm going to go ahead and right about in this area, that's going to be where I'm making my cuts. Mm -hmm. That way I don't add too much uh, volume. But again, if you think this is a patient you're going to be transferring a lot, I might do it somewhere over yeah. here. Just give you a little bit extra room, mm -hmm. okay? Now, if you're wanting to do at the cannula technique, which Joe uh, prefers. Uh, I have two just basic uh, ones here. So this is, of course, on this side is the Avalon. And so you would just be making your connection uh, here and here at the connector to the cannula. Now, what's important about, uh, I'll make a note of this, is before you disconnect your lines, make sure you know, first off, how your cannula was placed, and then also what is your inflow and what is your outflow. Now, when it's perfectly placed... The shorter one is the inflow. Right. When it's perfectly placed, the inflow <laughs> is pointed up like this, but mm -hmm. it is shorter, okay? Mm -hmm. But sometimes, um, I think there might be some markings on here, actually, but sometimes they have them so deep, buried in, and it's got, you know, gauze on it and all of these things you really can't see. So just mark it before you disconnect. In so the old days, they didn't... Top. In the old days, yeah, they, they didn't did have, not have a marker. But, they didn't have an arrow. They have an arrow now. Yeah, I but just in case, go ahead and mark it yourself, and mm -hmm. then you know. Okay. Now, if you're doing um, also the same thing, you know, over here, if you're doing a, a you know, a inflow and an outflow, make sure uh, at the at, at the cannula, make sure you look <coughs> at your cannula sizes and know which is which, and just go ahead and make a mark. Do something so that you're not confused, because that's the last time you want to be uh, last thing you want to be worried about when you've already clamped and disconnected, okay? Now, if you are a want to uh, take off at the cannula, you need to make sure of how you are actually um, securing the lines to the patient. You use stat locks, kind of depending on where you have them, it's going to be hard to get it out of there. And so that's probably not going to be your best plan mm -hmm. if your stat lock is really close to the connector, okay? Mm -hmm. Stat locks down here, you might it'll be a lot easier, and you could certainly do something like that. Same thing when you're on the Avalon. Um, 
some of the doctors are really securing these and they're almost uh, hidden with all of the kinds of, uh, you know, they might have pressure cross and all these things. So make sure that you can really get in there and be able to put your hands on there to be able to maneuver getting the tubing off. Okay, I'm just going to change and just do it with connectors from now on. Okay, well, I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> so I covered everything, right? All the problems that you can run into with doing that. Yeah, I yeah. think that if you can't get it off, you can't get it off. I usually will try to try to manipulate it a little bit to see how tight or loose how much it give is. It yeah. If it doesn't have any, then I just abort that. The other yeah. option is to just take a 10 blade. You know, you come off, you just make a little, you just put a little pressure on it and it just peels right off. It comes off so easily. It just depends on what you prefer, you know, and, and how long, with. how much redundancy in the lines you want and yeah. how you set it up. But, yeah. Okay, so now we, we've done all our pre-planning. We've got all of our people. We've talked about what we're going to do. Now we're ready to do it. So we're going to ch change out that. Here's the change out step. So you're, you know, ready, set, go, right? But we're just at the ready, set right now. So make sure you have enough people to help. Make sure you have a sterile hands person and a non-sterile. At minimum, you need two people to really do this well and quickly. Safely. Safely, yeah. Um, go ahead and support your patient with 100% FiO2 vent in ECMO. If your patient is very presser um, dependent, they're very flow dependent, go ahead and give them just a little bit of a bolus, okay? This is why getting your nurse involved mm -hmm. is a great idea because you, you've got all the tools that you need to be able to uh, keep the patient as stable uh, as possible for while, the, while you're doing this. Go ahead and put on your PPE. Identify your drainage or venous tubing. Mark it with something on the new one and on the old one. I, it's an incredibly important step. Okay. 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 Create, uh, Joe, I've seen it done wrong. Create your sterile field with your towels or drapes. Um, have your sterile perfusionist. Chloroprep tubing area to be removed or cut. Position the original tubing over the sterile field and the new tubing with careful placement. So lay your old venous and your new venous next to each other. Lay your arterial or you know inlet next to the other inlet. Mm -hmm. And then verbalize again which line will be cut and connected first. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now you're ready to go. Note your time. Proceed with the double clamping or of the lines, or if you're doing a cannula, <laughs> cut the line only one at a time. Fill the saline, you know, with an airless connection, of course. Re uh, connect it, repeat, and cut and fill for your other line. Verify correct connections before you unclamp, because you can still take them off if you have to. Trace your lines to your oxygen and your circuit. Unclamp nines and note time. Uh, verify your color change. Look at your um, saturations, make sure they're starting to rise, and then go ahead and tighten all your connections, tie band if desired, and secure lines to the bed or the patient, however you like to do that. We are a really efficient team at doing it. We, I guess we do it enough that we, it's kind of become, uh, a, you know, we've got the steps down. We can usually have it done in around a minute to a minute and a few seconds pretty quick. So even the most critical patients can usually, um, uh, you know, rebound pretty quickly with that kind of time change. But if you need to take an extra 30 seconds or a minute, do it to verify all that stuff. I have seen one hooked up backwards. 
and then you just have to clamp again and now you've dis you have to disconnect again and now you're nervous and you're sweating and all of that. And remember the clot is our enemy but he's also our friend because he keeps us from bleeding. That's it. Okay, very good. Good. Excellent work, John. <clears throat> John. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Give yeah, us some so, give us some thoughts on that and yeah, let's open the phone line. Yeah, we got the phone lines open, I see okay. and Somebody call in, okay, because we're going to spin, so you got to call in to win a prize and we can discuss this. John, go ahead. I'm sorry. I have a, lot, I have a, a few comments on that because we do a lot of swing clubs. But that was a good review, Tammy. Um, number one thing for people listening, I have a golden rule if I go into a traveling hospital, and we have a golden rule here, and that is no one changes the vent without consulting with diffusion and letting us know. Mm -hmm. Because I've run into that before where I come back into the room and everything is, my, my blood gases are completely out of whack. And that's mm -hmm. because the respiratory therapist decided, according to their protocols, that the event needs to be changed. And so we, we have no uh, allowance for, for somebody to change the event. Even CCM will, 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 will change the event without, without talking to us. Because if we don't work together, we're both oxygenating and ventilating the patient. Mm -hmm. One can't do one pull one way and one pull the other way. Mm -hmm. But for sure, you want the vent settings as low as possible, right, mm -hmm. for a rest and recovery of the lungs. Absolutely. But the other thing is, is I've done an awful lot of change-outs, and I did not know people were disconnecting it from the cannula like you guys do. I've never seen that. I we, don't. Not me. I not do. me. Not us. Oh, okay, because I didn't know we were allowed to be grabbing onto the cannulas and pulling things off and plugging things back on, but I guess uh, if they allow that. So it just seems to me, though, um, well, we, need, we need several feet of additional tubing on the old circuit. We, if we're going to put an extra circuit on, we're going to add the luxury of making our future transport much, much easier. So we need two or three feet of the old oh, tubing. Just slant, cut, and connect, and go right away. It's so, so simple and easy. And you can do it right about the abdomen level of the patient. Um, we have no no qualms whatsoever about adding an extra length of tubing. I mean, you're you're adding the surface area that you're adding is 95% of it's in the oxygenator. A foot or two right. of tubing, you know, in our in our minds, is making absolutely no difference whatsoever. Do you ever just change out the oxygenator itself? No. Yeah. Well, only, only on a well, no, not really. No. Yeah. Even if it's just a quadrox, we're still going to have at least three or four foot of tubing, maybe less. Yeah. We could do it with less. We do it with a foot or two. But then you're doing it, you know, on the bracket. You know, you might have to put a sterile field either yeah. on the floor or very near the floor. Mm -hmm. So we have done that. But, but um, adding a, usually if we find a, a quadrock separately, it'll have only a foot of tubing on it. And we always use connectors ready to go, just yeah. two connectors. And I can show you, it'd be too hard to describe on this talk today that, you don't have to use a bulb syringe or, or a saline syringe at all to fill, oh. to make your uh, wet connections. There's oh. a real easy way of doing it. And it doesn't even require additional person, actually. Oh, okay. Very good. I think we have a, a caller. Thanks, Hello, you're, you're on the air. Hello? You're on the air? Um, hello, is anybody there? We have a phone caller, but I can't hear you. Okay. So, hello, uh, hello oh, guy. Hey, Jeff. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good. Hey, um, that's good talk. Uh, I can't. 
and Trina are going to talk to you. I just want to ask you, um, the people listening or whatever, just additional information. So when we would look at Oxnia performance, we would, um, we would test it at 100%. If we had any questions, then we would have checked the performance of the oxygenator. We were ventilated at 100% oxygen, 10 liters a minute of gas flow, and after about you know, five minutes, we take a gas on it. And we look at target parameters. So if the outlet CO2 is less than 200, and or um, the uh, CO2 of the oxygen is less than 150, so we would determine adequate O2 uptake, and we are we're switching out based on that. Mm -hmm. Or if the CO2 is greater than 40 on the outlet, or the Dallas CO2 from uh, pre and post membrane was less than 10, we would change it out uh, at that too. We had my target change out parameters mm -hmm. with respect to gas exchange performance. Yeah, so we, that's kind of, because some people, they take post washing your gas, like, okay, we take it, what are you looking for? What, what are our change out parameters for, you know, our, you know gas exchange, that or yeah, that's actually an excellent point that I, I did not specify. When you're testing your post-oxygenator um, circuit gas, you absolutely, you know, no matter what you are, you can draw one at whatever FiO2 the ECMO is set at uh, for, to support your patient. Maybe you're 75% because you're starting to wean. Yeah. But you also need to set it at 100% and then draw that as well. That is a, that's a good point. I did not mm -hmm. point that out. Yeah, we always look like how much reserve is this box in your hand? Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, because you over time you see a little bit sweet gases, we're unable for less efficient at clearing CO2, and then we would just ventilate at a max setting and see how much reserve this has. You know, we currently may be at half by to a one, or at, you know, 70% or whatever, it's like, mm -hmm. We have room to go on the FR2, we have room to get going sweet, but how much reserve do we have, and how much longer, you know, may or may not the same lap, whatever. Mm -hmm. So we try to gauge that, at, you know, ventilating at that setting, but yeah. I mean, it's something I think about, you know. Yeah. Well, Jeff, let me ask if I can, um, uh, and I'm going to shamelessly plug my app, but do you have our, our app? Because if you don't, you should get it. You go to iTunes. Oh, no, I use, yeah, I okay. have it. You have our app? Okay. So, my, um, yeah, I use it every day. Your pump stuff. Perfusion uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. But in that, in that app, like right, but in that app is also... O2 transfer. So you can yeah, yeah, calculate your O2 transfer and then you can look at the oxygenator's MFU, your nomograms for what you should be transferring, what it's rated at, and then you know if right. your oxygenator is achieving mm -hmm. how it's performing and then you actually know. Right. Yeah. You should give that app to some of your children. You know, they probably could use that for <laughs> Christmas. Great Christmas present. <laughs> um, well, thank well, you. Well, Alison, do you have any critical like, LP that you, I mean, a lot of people are like, say, you know, 70, 80 LP. Do you have a critical LP that you look at? Or is it just to a point where you can't effectively flow because yeah. you've got high pressure? Yeah. Right. I, I always kind of use the guide, although we don't regularly monitor pressures. But, I mean, I have checked if I've gotten concerned about something or something was going on with the patient and we think they're maybe hypercoagulable. Um, just right. Delta P under 100, yeah. you know. Sure. But if your yeah. Delta P is over yeah. 100 and the trend just keeps increasing, 
yeah. you know, over time right. or yeah. over a day, then that is probably conclusive that yeah. you have some yeah. resistance. But there was a fella, and I'm trying to remember his name, and it's terrible that I can't remember his name, and I hate that about myself when I start forgetting people's names. It's, I guess it's a, it's a part of being old. I'm going to look it up. But he did an, an incredible talk, and it was at the THI uh, 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 program, the THI uh, Perfusion School program. It was a few years ago. And you can have as much as 60%, if I remember correctly, and I'm pretty sure about this, of clot burden in your oxygenator and still not have a critical uh, delta P. Hmm. So I think that... Yeah, I've seen that drain of Yeah, if you ever wash it through, or wash it through, yeah. You never even do. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly. And so I think that, you know, that's, you know, not, I'm not, I'm not plugging, you know, I'm not trying to plug, um, uh, uh, what you call the it? Elsa? Uh, the Elsa, Elsa, Elsa meter. Yeah. I'm not trying to plug the Elsa meter, but, um, you know, measuring intra oxygenator blood volume is, uh, you know, really an important thing and a very, uh, a positive thing to do. Roger, Roger DeLong. I knew I'd have to look him up. Roger DeLong, mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. it really, uh, he gave a yeah, really interesting... Well, I had a question. But you said you don't notice Delta P. Uh, currently, do you at least measure uh, any pressure? M measure what? We don't measure any pressure. No, we don't no. measure any pressures, no. 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 no, no pressures. We don't measure any pressures. Yeah, so we used to do that. I, I forget... Uh, Place down, we took cardio, so I switched uh, jobs. But anyways, I worked at a, a place before. We had the same, same thing. We didn't monitor any pressures. We had a CT man quadrant set up. We took a guy who was on DV ECMO, took him down to uh, everything's running fine, took the guy down to CT scan, cleaned up up to the room, and then as soon as we got to the room, the guy went down to support, maybe like two days, right? We get in the room and we had to go up on RPM, and the phone Yeah. Yeah. yeah, extremely yeah. hypercoagulable. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But see, and that's the. Were so I, see, I, kind of, I mean, you guys are doing a lot more than I've been doing COVID patients, but I know the COVID patients are more hypercoagulable. I, I We've had a few. We've had a few. But, you know, it depends, on, too, on your management strategy. 
we're sitting bedside the entire time, so we have really have a handle on what's going on. You know, you're you're yeah, yeah. you're 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 looking at your RPMs. You're in there, uh, you know, helping wedge the patient, not wedge the patient, and all these different things. And so, I think we're really in tuned. I'm not saying we couldn't have something like that happen, but we are yeah, right yeah. on top of that, and we don't have you know a, an entire floor to manage. I know some places have to do it that way, so we're able to. You know, we can get busy, but for the most part, we have a couple patients at a time, yeah. and we can kind of really spend some time in each room, and so I think that helps, too. I think so, too. Yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah. yeah. We, I like, just, we never worried about it, and then we got burned. Yeah. Well, I think there's some important concepts, and one is the one that Roger had, had taught, um, which is, you know, even if you had been monitoring... Uh, Delta P, you may not have seen it. And I think we all know this intuitively, you know, from experience that clot begets clot. Mm -hmm. And you'll start yeah. building this clot burden up. And then just all of a sudden it goes from, let's say, 40 or 50 or 60 percent to bam, 100 percent or 90 yeah. percent all yeah. at one time. And I think clot that's why. Clot. Yeah, it's like uh, Tammy Slide, you know, yeah. that uh, that you see there, the platelets are having a party. And, yeah. um, yeah. you know, yeah. clot begets clot. I mean, that's just, uh, I think that's just known. And so, you know, John, what do you think about that? Yeah, I have a few things to say about that. I, I know that a lot of people run ECMO systems like the Quadrox and others where you're really not monitoring really any of your friends at all. And it's, it's very common, and, and, and you get away with it an awful lot. But when you go to a system, uh, I'm not endorsing anything one or the other, but when you, when we evolved from uh, when the CardiHealth came out and became very widespread, and we had all these things that we were monitoring, that actually our thoughts were, why do we need any of this? We don't need to know all this stuff. We were fine the way it was. And then a, then a circuit suddenly clots off. And we raced in and changed the circuit out, and it was still clotted off. And that's because it was clotted off at the cannula. So when you're not monitoring pressures, you have no idea where the circuit clots off. It could be a complete venous, it could be an oxygenator, or it could be arterial. Mm -hmm. But with the pressures, it'll tell you exactly where, where your clot off problem is. If you have an extremely high negative venous, it's in the venous cannula. If you have an extremely high tree membrane with a high delta P, it's, it's oxygenator. And if you have a high tree and post oxygenator, it's in the arterial line cannula. And, and so, we changed out a whole entire system, and lo and behold, didn't solve the problem. Right. We don't know where the pressures are. And actually, we were monitoring pressures, but no one looked at them fast enough to decipher it. So yeah. it, it works out okay until you have a sudden change, and you go racing in to do something, and it's not the problem. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, I think that, you know, something acute that happens acutely is going to be probably not seen. Um, like what you're describing, um, I think that, uh, you know, I don't think it's bad. I don't have an issue with people that do, mm -hmm. but I think if you're, you know, and you're in a different environment, you're one guy managing a whole floor. And of course you have the specialists that are there and they're one to two or whatever they are. Um, however you guys are two to one, whatever the, the ratio is that you're using and other people use different ratios. But in our particular circumstance, you know, we're so aware. We are checking our, we have our RPMs. We are looking at our flows. When there's a change in something, 
um, then we're exploring why that change occurred. And so, you know, the more you add, not that it's bad, I'm not saying it's bad, but for our system, of course, we don't use the cardio help, but I don't think you have the cardio help on, on all of your patients, or most places don't. Uh, they're very expensive, and they use different, different versions of the same tool, right? Um, but you keep adding more and more things to it. There's more areas of failure. And so you sort of have to weigh your, your risk and benefit ratio. So I think either way you do it, um, has advantages and disadvantages, and you have to consider your practice and then make decisions based on your risk-benefit scale. So nobody's wrong to do it one way or another, in my view, um, but each has advantages and disadvantages, and you have to not look at it in a vacuum, but consider it in your overall practice Mm -hmm. behavior, practice uh, guidelines, or your practice routine, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah, we, we use all of them. We, use, we have plenty of, of quadroxes running. We have plenty of quadroxes running. Occasionally, even something else that comes along, we'll, we'll start using that and see. Mm -hmm. but, um, but it's interesting to see the difference is with a quadrox, you feel like you're mo they're not monitoring anything, and then with the quadroxes, you're almost overkill. So it's kind of interesting to see, um, and sometimes it can backfire. Uh, the surgeons have said, you know, why are you looking at all that? It's running fine. You know, we don't. If you didn't have that, if you didn't have all those monitors on there, you wouldn't know that that was happening. Mm -hmm. so, well, I'm going to tell. And, the, and strangely enough, there's a little bit of truth to that. Actually, you bring up a very good. You bring up that's a very good point, um, and that's a very true, true, true statement. I'm going to close this out with a, just a quick story, if I may, and then we're going to go right to the wheel, sir. You have another caller? He's still oh, here. Oh, I'm sorry, Jeff. Forgive me. Uh, you're still there. Did we answer all your questions? Or you uh, you gave us all your comments that you... Yeah. Uh, okay, thank you for calling in. Thanks, Jeff. We're going to do a spin for you. So yeah. I've got... You're done. I got the Say again? You got an answer. Okay, good. Oh, good, good. good. Well, you get a legitimate spin. So Jeff Campbell... Uh, so we're going to do Eric and Jeff. Okay, yep. so I'm gonna need to get your address, Jeff, so I can send you what you win. Unless you win, right. uh, unless you win extra call, then I don't have to send you anything. Okay. <laughs> so which you could win that. So you're gonna you so got, make you sure. Got, you got something to take recall, I might. You know what? I'll invite you down. Come and have a, we'll have a crawfish party. It's not <laughs> crawfish season anymore. It's kind of coming to an end. But uh, certainly next year when we start open again, you need to come down. That's what you really should do. In fact, you should. Uh, you're yeah. up in you're up in Detroit or Chicago or something, aren't you? Ohio. Ohio. Toledo. Toledo. Oh, Toledo. Toledo. It's cold. It's miserable. Why don't you just relocate to Houston? <laughs> now here's your chance to say, and we're hiring. And we're hiring. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting recruited. Uh, hey, I think I don't know, man. I think Houston's way better than Chattanooga. Okay, so Tennessee's just you know, I, uh, come on. Come on, that's come on. A, come on, come on, come on. Oh, thanks, um, thanks for calling in. Do we need to uh, have him back to Magic to get information, or? No, well, I know Jeff. We're we're, we're good. Oh, okay. yeah, we're good. Okay, so we'll figure all yeah. of this out. Yeah, we're okay, so, so I'm gonna just very quickly tell the story. I was in Belize. We were supposed to do two hearts. The first heart I set up, we did the case. I, I set the second pump up for the second case. 
and I knew there was something missing. I was like looking at this thing going, I know I'm missing something. And I just couldn't, you know how you just, yeah. you know you're missing something. And I couldn't figure out what it was. But then finally I realized it. And I was like, oh hell. Because they were using the old Medtronic flow probe that was the connector you had to put in yeah. to put it on it. Yeah. I remember those. And yeah. And I couldn't find one. Oh. There were none. So I said, yeah. listen, I, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think we should do this case. Yeah. You don't know where you're going. Yeah. Oh, what a nightmare. And, uh, you so could put your somebody, hand on the mm -hmm. Yeah, well. High flow, low yeah. flow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't work that way. That's just pressure. <laughs> so uh, next thing I know, somebody came and handed me, a handed me the phone and said, it's Dr. Robicek. He wants to talk to you. And if you don't know Dr. Robicek, you know, he's an old Hungarian, talks like that, you know, very low voice. Okay. And... Uh, he was uh, a really interesting character. He's unfortunately deceased. Um, he was one of our award recipients. You remember mm -hmm. Dr. Robichek? I remember. And uh, he, uh, he's like, Joe, what the hell's the problem? We did cases forever without flow probes. Why do you need a flow probe? <laughs> I said, well, Dr. Robichek, that was when you had, you had roller pumps, so you knew. Yeah. No, 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 that's just ridiculous. You can, you can, you can tell the patient, they have the blood pressure. I mean, if they don't have blood pressure, you don't have any flow. I said, yeah, but they could be giving drugs and making the... So you're telling... You know, oh, Joe, I just don't understand. All these new perfusionists are talking to me. You know? So I was like, I understand, sir. Okay, so we, we'll go ahead and cancel the case. So they cancel the case. So you, we were way too dependent on all our devices, right? Dude, just I wasn't make doing, the I, dark blood red. I wasn't doing an elective case in a foreign country without a flow probe with a centrifugal pump. I don't care. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm pretty bold. I'm pretty bold. You are, pretty bold, you yeah. are bold. But I'm not that bold. You know? That's crazy. You know, there's a lot of old perfusionists, and there's a lot of bold perfusionists. There's not a whole lot of old, bold perfusionists. So you got to know your limits. They yeah. say